Chapter 7, verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good evening. It's good to see you all, and I'm glad that, uh, that you guys can join with us. If this is your first time here, uh, my name is Ricardo Stewart. I'm one of the pastors. I usually do a bulk of the preaching, and we'll do such tonight. And so we have a lot to cover um, as we're looking at Judges chapter 7 all the way to Judges chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, why don't you go op open it up and meet me in Judges chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand and keep it raised really high. One of the ushers will give you a copy of the Bible. And if you don't own one, keep the copy that we're handing out. It is our gift to you so that you can grow and understanding and knowledge of the Lord. Now, if you have the book, the Bible that we're handing out, we're gonna be on page 141 is where you can meet us at. As you turn there, a couple things that I wanted to uh, uh, highlight for you guys. First is right after the service today, about five minutes after the service, we're gonna have a Q&A. So any questions you have regarding Christianity, the Bible, God, anything that we've talked about or haven't talked about in Judges, uh, we invite you to stick around um, and as we try to address those questions, a few of us will be up here to address those questions. Also, um, this may not pertain to you, but we are starting February 28th. We are changing our service times from 9, 30, 11, and 5 to 9, 11, and 5. And so if you've been in the morning services, you can see that we are bursting at the seams and, and it's hard to get people in the parking lot and out of the parking lot. They get kids in childcare, our children's ministry and out of children's ministry. Um, it has nothing to do with how long the, the, the pastor in the morning, he does preach longer, but um, we, we, got, we got to get that situation fixed. And so that's starting February 28th. Okay. If you were just joining us, let me just kind of give you a quick overview on where we've gone in Judges. Judges begins to tell the story of what God's people did as they responded to the death of Moses and then the death of Joshua. The God's people were called to go into the land of Canaan. They were supposed to inhabit the land and worship God. And in worshiping him, many other nations would begin to see God. However, that doesn't happen. We, in fact, we begin to see that they go through these cycles again and again and again. And these cycles would look like this. The people of God would do what was evil in the sight of God. They would sin. God would allow another nation and his sovereignty to be raised up to kind of beat them up. And then they would be oppressed in that moment. They would cry out to God. And then God would provide a deliverer, usually someone who would come, stab somebody in the stomach, free God's people. Um, and then there'd be, they'd be rest in the land. And we've kind of seen those cycles give and take throughout the last few weeks. Well, today we get to see part two of Gideon. And if you recall, last week we, in, we were introduced to Gideon. And last week was the best part of Gideon that we were going to hear. Gideon began to trust God. He turned from his ways. Um, he began to believe in God and he removed the idols that were in the front yard and he, and he made something to remind people of the God of peace or the God of shalom. And so if you can recall, Gideon was real sheepish, really shy. He, he, he said, God, I don't know why you want to use me. I'm from a small town. I'm from a small tribe. He was basically saying, I'm just a young black kid out of Akron, Ohio. I'm not even supposed to be here, right? And so that's, that was kind of Gideon's, Gideon's uh, deal. But then the Lord began to work with him. And where we concluded last week is that now God was beginning to raise up his army um, ultimately and fight on behalf of the Israelites as they were going against the Midianites, the people who had been oppressing them for seven years. And so that's where we're going to pick up tonight. Um, so if you're with me in Judges chapter 7, um, that's where we'll begin at um, this evening. But the people, oh, sorry guys, I'm in Joshua. That, we're going to teach Joshua one year too, and it's going to be good. And Joshua 7 is amazing too, but we're going to start in Judges 7 today. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early in a camp beside the spring of Herod, 
and the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Moray in the valley. Now, here's what we know. We all have people in our lives, um, people who we look up to, sometimes they're celebrities, sometimes there's people in our culture who we look up to who start off um, at a trajectory that's going really well eventually to get too prideful or whatnot, and you see their fall. This person for me, it's probably for you guys too, because I feel like we're the same, is Kanye West, right? Um, Kanye West, you guys laugh, Kanye West was like my dude when he first came out. I wasn't a Christian, 2002 he came out, and he was making music that was different than any rapper at that time. This is like during the time when like the No Limit Soldiers would make him say, uh, right? And so now you had Kanye coming in with good lyrics, and he was talking about different things that's happened in the shy, and it was... It was amazing. He's talking, he had that song about Jesus walks. It was like, man, it's all about Jesus. I'm like, this is unique. And then all of a sudden it was like, he went from talking about Jesus to wanting to be called Jesus, right? Like something happened. Like he went from a reverence of who God was to just the most blasphemous person ever, right? And it's going, what happened to Kanye? The same thing that happened to Kanye, believe it or not, can happen to us. Um, Not that we all have a lucrative rap career going on, however. What happens is, if God gives us something, if we have some form of success, how do we begin to handle that, right? I think we we get at some moments that we need the grace of God in our life when we fail. And we're reminded through God's grace that God is not gonna utterly forget us in our failure. But I also believe that some of the worst thing that could happen to us if God gives us what we want and we don't know how to handle it. And so we need to understand the grace of God in our life that when we have success, that we don't utterly forget God and how we got there. And ultimately, who is the one who's given us the gifts in which we have? What we have in Gideon now is Gideon has been on this trajectory of grace, of God's undeserved gift in Gideon's life, that the Lord is raising up Gideon. And what we see in this story is he's trusting in God, trusting in God. And then he gets to this top and he begins to teeter where it's God and Gideon. And as soon as you begin to say God and you add anything else to it, there's a decline of pride. And we begin to see that throughout these three chapters. And not only in Gideon, but also in his son Abimelech and who we'll cover at the very end of today's message. But here we are, God's people. They're getting ready to go and fight on behalf of God. God is going to be on their side. Their leader now is Gideon. And God looks at Gideon's army and he says, Gideon, I got to tell you something. He says, what's that, God? He says, your army's too big. He's got 32,000 people with him and he's ready to go fight the Midianites. And here's what God says to him in verse 2. The Lord said to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Verse 2 is crucial to us understanding what's happening here. God is saying, the reason why I'm going to reduce your army is because I don't want you at all to think somehow that is your hand that brought about the victory. I Meaning I'm trying to make it in such a way that you realize this was 100% God's grace working through you, lest you begin to boast. Lest you begin to think it was all about you. Lest you begin to absorb the glory as opposed to being able to reflect the glory that he gives. And so that's exactly what's happening. And so Gideon goes, all right, God. 32,000, what do you want to do? He goes, here's what I want you to do, Gideon. Talk to your people and say, anybody here who's afraid, who doesn't want to fight, why don't you go ahead and stop now? Just go ahead, raise your hand. And then Gideon goes, all right, who's afraid? So one guy raises his hand, then another guy raises his hand. It was like a youth group altar call, right? And every, everybody started looking around, you, you too, me too. All of a sudden, 22,000 people were like, yeah, and Gideon's like, what? I thought you guys were down. Nah, bro, we scared, man. We don't, we don't want to fight. <laughs> 
we've never fought before, Gideon. We're sorry. So 22,000 people gone. Now there's 10,000. And Gideon's okay at this moment. Like he's pretty brave now because he still has 10,000 men who can fight with. And you're bold when somebody had your back. 10,000 people. God says, guess what, Gideon? Yeah, God, you're ready to go. He goes, no, not yet, man. We got to, there's too many people. Here's what I want you to do next. I want you to take these men to the water. And I want you to watch them get a drink of water. Now, there's going to be some men who, who, who like get down and they lap up the water like a dog. I'm not going to show you how they would do it. You, you can imagine what that looks like, right? That's just not, I don't know. I shouldn't do that. And then so then he says, but there will be some who will go and they'll kneel down and they'll take the water in a cup and they'll drink it. And this is exactly what happens. Well, there were, there were 300 men who cupped the water and drank it from their hand. And there was 9,700 who lapped it like a dog. God says, hey, the ones who lapped it like a dog, those are not the ones that I want you to go with actually the 300. Now, you might have heard this, or maybe you, you haven't, but what many people say is the reason why God chose those 300 was the way in which they drank the water. There was a way that shows that the guys who lapped the, the water, their eyes weren't up and they could be attack, attacked and they weren't used to be ready for battle. But the men who kneeled down and scooped up the water, they were able to have the water in one hand, their eyes up, and another hand on their sword, and, and that's what God was doing. Um, I don't believe that, Here's why. It doesn't say that um, at all, right? In fact, what verse 2 says, God says, I want to make sure that I'm getting the glory lest you boast. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm going to go with God and what he says on that than any interpretation that we have, all right? I don't think it has any do with the way that these men drink water. It's not more masculine to drink one way or other, okay? It's not like, okay, this is how real dudes drink water, right? It has nothing to do with that, right? This is everything to do with God saying, I want to get the glory. You are not made for glory. You are made to reflect glory. So he's able to do that again. So now you would think Gideon's ready. Gideon's still not ready. And God knows that. Verse 9. That same night, the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it to your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant. I love that. God goes, I know you're still afraid. Gideon, you're still afraid? Yes. <laughs> and God had already shown himself to be faithful to Gideon. God could have said, listen, wasn't it enough that when you asked for a sign, I blew up the, 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 the meat. Remember that last week? The angel was like, bam, blew up the meat, and Gideon's like, I'm in. And then he was like, no, I'm, I don't know, Lord. I got this old navy fleece. If there's a way that you can make water on the fleece, right? Remember that? And the guy was like, I'll do that. And he goes, ah, that would have happened naturally. Actually, God, could you make the water not be on the fleece? And then God did that. God continuously continues to shepherd Gideon. He goes, Gideon, if you're afraid, he doesn't say, Gideon, if you're afraid, you're not my guy. You don't have big faith. What's wrong with you? Gideon's just like you, and he's just like me. He goes, if you're afraid, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to the camp, take Pur, your servant, with you. The camp he's talking about is he wants them to sneak into the Midian camp and hear what they're talking about. He says, when you hear what they're talking about, your hands will be strengthened. You're going to hear something that you're going to be assured by my grace. And God is going to work through the enemy, and he's going to assure him. And what happens is they go down, and they listen to a man talking. When this man begins to talk about a dream here, um, in, verse, in verse 13, when Gideon came, behold, the man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came, and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And the, I'm sure the guy's like, ooh, a barley cake? Man, you know what that usually means, right? He has no idea, right? 
his buddy actually interprets the dream somehow. Verse 14, and his comrade answered, this is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. So they're hearing this and Gideon goes, they're afraid. They're afraid, and he's strengthened, and the Lord assures him because he knows who has his back. If you've ever been in a fight before, and you guys look like a rugged group. I know you guys be fighting, right? So if you're ever in a fight, you know that you're way more bold when you got backup, right? Like, you know you're bold. Like, I mean, if you, if you ever were talking trash, and you look back, and nobody was behind you, what would you do? Ah, I was just joking. I don't even, I wasn't even talking about you, <laughs> Right? But if you know you have God on your back, what? What you what? You know what I mean? You're there. Gideon is brave now. And here's why God assures him. Here's what God will do with this, with his people. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, he will not only provide the spirit of the Lord for you to do it. He will not only provide the means of grace in which you need, but oftentimes he will give you the assurance that I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise is that you did nothing to earn his love and you're going to do nothing to lose his love that there's going to be these promises. And sometimes the way he brings about assurance is not only through his word, but the assurance that he brings is sometimes through other people. So Gideon now is emboldened in this moment to say, now I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Mind you, this is the Lord's battle, and God is the one who is to get the glory. So as soon as Gideon hears this, he begins to rally up the people. He's excited, and he begins to talk to them, and he says, Arise, verse 15, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout, For the Lord! And it should have stopped there. But he says, For the Lord and for Gideon. And you're going, Wait a minute, Gideon. All of a sudden, you're big and brave now that they should be shouting, This is for, for the Lord and for Gideon? Do you see that? Just, just, just a chapter ago, Lord, uh, I don't know why you want me, God. My father, you know, he's, you know, he's not even really liking me. I'm from this small tribe. I'm just a young black kid from Akron, Ohio. I ain't even supposed to be here, right? Like that, that was his ploy. Now he's afraid. God assures him. And he says, guys, I want you to do like I do. We're going to go fight, and we're going to get victory for the Lord and for Gideon. That was just a teetering there. That just very subtle decision that he began to say, I'm going to take a little bit of the glory and tuck it in my own pocket. Like, it's still going to be for God, but I'm going to get a little bit of glory. I'm going to tithe myself some glory right now. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep a hold of this. And now you begin to see how he had this trajectory of grace, but now it's teetering on the decline of pride. So as it goes, the men, they begin to blow their trumpets, verse 20. And then three companies blew the trumpets, broke the jars. They held in their left hands and torches in their right hands. And the trumpets blew and they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. And they, they cried out and they fled when they blew the 300 trumpets. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all of the army. Now, you would think now, God's people is getting the victory. Here, God is getting the victory. I hope you guys just read that. These guys aren't doing anything. They blew trumpets, right? You can't say, man, how'd that fight go? It was great, man. You should have seen our skills. What skills? They had torches and a trumpet. They're like, you ready? Right, and that was it. And the people start running. There was, they had no fighting skills. They had, a, they had a mean trumpet game. That was it. 
right? God was getting the victory. He caused the people to run into chaos and to flee. And so God flexed, God was working through them, and they begin to pursue. And they pursue and pursue and pursue to the point where now Gideon is ready to get the kings and the princes of Midian. Well, they run, they run to the edge of the town is where Ephraim was at. Now, Ephraim was probably the most privileged tribe. And Ephraim had not been asked to be a part of the fighting. But Ephraim, Ephraim was able to take out the princes. Well, in the beginning of chapter 8, they're kind of upset. They're upset that they were an ass in. Verse eight, chapter 8, verse 1. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, that is to Gideon, what is this that you have done to us not to call us when you went to fight against Midian? And they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, what have I done now in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest in Abizer? God has given into your hands the princess of Midian, that is, Oreb and Zeb. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided, subsided and he, as he said this. Now, did you see the pride in them? They're going, how come you didn't ask us? And then he manipulates them. Oh, you guys are so much better. I mean, why does it matter? I mean, I didn't do anything. You guys are actually the ones who took out the princess. And so he kind of appeased their pride, and they're like, oh, yeah, we did. Never mind. We're good, right? They're fine with it. And you're starting to see more and more of Gideon's pride. Now, what happens next? He goes from being bashful, shy, woe is me Gideon, to now he, he begins to act like Denzel's character in Man on Fire, right? Like he's about to go after some serious revenge. Now, God is not saying, Gideon, uh, get crazy, but that's exactly what he's doing now. That the power is getting to his head. The success is getting to his head. He's no longer making this about God and humbling himself. He's actually beginning to make it about himself. So he continues here. And Gideon came to the Jordan and he crossed over and there was 300 men who were with him and they were exhausted yet pursuing. And so he said to the men of Succoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me for they are exhausted and I'm pursuing Ziba and Zamuna, the kings of Midian. Now here's what happens next, a paraphrase. They said, do you really think that you're gonna beat these kings? These are his people. These are Israelites. And he goes, who do you think you are? We're not giving you bread. And you know what he says? Well then, you don't give me bread, guess what's gonna happen when I come back? When I come back, I'm gonna frail your skin. Um, AKA, I'm gonna kill you guys. And then he goes to another group of people, some Israelites. And he says, hey, can you guys give us bread? We're tired. The same thing. And he goes, okay, when I come back, I'm taking names. And, and you know the rest of the saying, right? Um, he goes, I'm taking names and I'm kicking butts, right? And when I come back. Well, he continues to pursue these particular kings. Verse seven, so Gideon said, well then when the Lord has given Zeba and Zamuna into my hand, I will flail your flesh with thorns of the wilderness and with briars. Well, guess what happens? Jump down here, verse 13. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from the battle of Asin, of Harris, and he captured a young man of Succoth and questioned him. And he wrote down, he wrote down for him the officials and the elders of Succoth, 77 men. And he came to the men of Succoth and said, Behold, Zeba and Zamuna, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zamuna already in your hand, and that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? And he took the elders of the city, and he took thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, and taught the men of Succoth a lesson. That's euphemism for saying he gave them the business, right? The, the, this is not something that, that God is saying, hey, make sure if they, if they treat you that way, go back and just do work on them. No, no, he's man on fire now. 
they all must die, right? He is taking all of the glory for himself and he's taking matters into his own hands and he does such with the next community as well. But you see just the vengeance in him? He goes to this boy and he goes, hey, give me all the names. Give me, write them all down and I'm going to find these men who did not give me bread. Guys, we're talking, they didn't give him bread, right? And then what does he do with the keys that he has in his hands? Verse 18, and he said to Ziba and Zamuna, where are the men whom you killed that Tabor? And they answered, as you are, so were they. Every one of them resembled the son of a king. And he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you have saved them alive, I would not kill you. So he said to Jether, his firstborn, rise and kill them. So, so here's what he does. He has the kings and he goes, you guys killed my brothers, like my biological brothers. So you're going to die. And he has his youngest son with him, one of his sons with him. And he goes, hey, you kill him. Because humiliation came about a person if he was killed by a woman or a young boy. And so he calls this little boy to kill him. And, 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 and you know, little boys are just like little boys now. The little boy is like, dad, I don't, I just been doing duck hunt. I don't know how to, I don't know how to kill anybody, dad. That was all fake, right? I'm not killing him. And so then eventually he takes him out himself and takes the kings out. Well, um, so far what we've seen is there has been a character change in the life of Gideon. Let me just pause here for a second. Because we can look at Gideon's story and it's gory. And we're going, we're not going back. We're not splaying people. We're not taking people out because they didn't give us bread. That, you know, that's not how we get down. But here's what we would do. We're the type of people that we start off in a path. And when God begins to give us some form of success or some form of rest or some form of, we begin to walk in his grace and his mercy, we immediately turn our back on God. I don't know about you, but there's ever been moments in your life where you realize um, you would, probably wouldn't say it, but I don't really need God in this season of my life. I've sat down with people and they say, you know what? My money's good. My family's healthy. I, I don't really need God. But what, what he's saying is, I never really needed God in the first place. I wanted to use things from God to get me into a particular place, but I never really wanted to worship him. The issue that is happening to the Israelites and in the Israelites and us today, it's not a matter of uh, acknowledging God. It's not a matter of acknowledging that he exists. It's do we want to worship him? Is he truly our Lord? Or do we only need God when things are going bad and when things are going good, we're okay. And then when things are going bad again, we want to reach out to God. Um, is it something that we were finding ourselves where we were giving the glory to God and reflecting glory? Or are we accepting it ultimately for ourselves? Well, Gideon at this moment, he's turned the corner. Um, so far, he hasn't even mentioned the name of God anymore. He's not crying out to God. He's not asking God for a sign. He's not seeking God. He himself is beginning to take the role of a leader in ways that God had not even called him to take the role. In fact, this next section takes the cake. Verse 22, he says, And then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. At this moment, you want to slap the Israelites. You want to say, he saved you guys? This weak dude? All he had was faith. God worked through him because it just seems that our God begins to work through the weak. Is that when we acknowledge our weakness is when God says, my grace is sufficient. That throughout Judges, the people of God are missing it. God has been the sovereign hand of mercy and grace that has always delivered them. And yet, they want to worship another human being. And it's Gideon. They said, how about you rule over us? And then your son can rule over us. And then your grandson. And Gideon says the right thing. Verse 23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And at this moment, you're like, that's right, Gideon. Point him back to God. 
But let me just tell you, he don't mean it. <laughs> you ever say something and then not mean it? Oh, no, you guys have never done that? Um, it, he, he's, so, so there's, I'm on this, this eating kick, right? I know I'm the only one um, in the beginning of New Year's. And so I'm not supposed to be having sugar and stuff because of some blood conditions that I have. And I'm, I'm starving after the 11 o'clock service. We're at 11 o'clock, starving. I'm going to die probably at the 11 o'clock service. And, and, um, and the, I had to go pick up my son from somewhere and he wanted to go to the store and we're getting him some, some cleats for baseball at the store. And I haven't eaten since like five o'clock this morning. And the only thing that the sports authority had was these gummy bears. And the gummy bears was like, Rick, eat me. And I was like, no, I'm not supposed to. And he was like, no, just do it. I'm like, no, I know that I shouldn't be having the sugar. I know it. I know that I should only have a few of them, right? Then I look in the back of it, it says 17 has this many grams. I'm not going to eat 17. I'm going to eat 20, right? And there's this, there's this sense where cognitively I know, I'm saying what I'm not supposed to do. Noah asked me, Dad, are you supposed to be in that? Is, that? is that on your health deal? And I'm like, listen, I'm a grown man. You sit back, make sure you buck it up. I'm daddy in this, right? Don't, don't be worried about what I'm doing, all right? Wasn't I getting you something at the store, right? You know, you just punk your kids a little bit. Um, and, and I'm saying one thing. I'm doing something completely different. Gideon's like, hey, no, God is king. You, you don't need me as king. God will rule over you. Everything he does next shows that his actions do not line up with what he says. Hear me. If we, those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus, if we lived up to half of what we said and what we knew about God, we'd be doing all right. I think that's why Paul says in Philippians, live up to what you've already attained. Meaning if you just lived out of your heart what you knew in your head, you'd be just fine. Most Christians know enough to trust, follow, and be mature Christians. Most of us, when it comes below our neck and our ultimately above our waist and our hearts and our gut belief, that's where we fall apart, is that we don't live out of what we know to be true, out of our convictions. And, and, and that's what happens with Gideon here. Here's what he does. Verse 24, and Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you, every one of you, give me earrings from his spoil. For they had, they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Apparently, the Ishmaelites had all the bling. And so he went to the Ishmaelites and said, hey, uh, give me all your, your, your gold. And they answered and said, we willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in his earrings of the spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn on the king of Midians and besides the collars that were around the necks uh, of their camels. So do you see what happened? He's getting rich right now. He's, no, I don't want to be your king. But let me ask, uh, can you guys give me all your money? I know you guys love me. And everyone just, yeah, we love you, man. Here's, here's our golden earrings. Here's everything you can have. And then next, he makes an ephod, verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod and put it in the city. I know you guys are going like, dang, he made an ephod? Wow, I can't believe he did that, right? So <laughs> here's what an ephod is. Um, an ephod was something that, that God had designated for the high priest. Now there were three offices in the Old Testament that God had set up to govern his people and to lead his people. There was the office of the king, um, there was the office of the prophet, and there was also the, the office of the high priest. And then in this section, you had judges, right? So the high priest would be somebody who would represent God to the people and vice versa. And this person would go to the tabernacle where the presence of the Lord would be. Now, at this moment, during the time of Judges, it's thought that, that the tabernacle was in Shiloh. And so that's where there should have been an ephod. But what, what Gideon does, is says, no, I will make my own ephod. And basically saying, I'm going to be your spiritual leader. I know God didn't appoint me this, but I'm appointing myself now. 
I'm going to lead you. And ultimately, no longer will you have to go to Shiloh to worship the Lord. You can worship the Lord here in Orpha where I, where I live. So he was saying, I am the one who will lead you. I will speak on behalf of God. Come to me, okay? That's not someone who's trying to be humble going, hey, no, God, you're king. He's, he's actually taking the role of the king here. Verse 28, so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel and they raised their heads no more and the land had rest for 40 years and the days of Gideon. Gideon just kind of went down towards the end. He made it about himself. That's what happens when you begin to turn in on you. That sometimes you get a little success and you want more and you want more and you want more. There's no governor on it. You know, you can never get enough praises. You can never get enough out of voice. There's never a moment where you go, you know what, I've reached my limit. You keep going and going and going. Well, what we have, just like every other judge is, Gideon is about to die. And it says, verse 29, Jeroboam, that is the son of Joash, that's Gideon, went to live in his own house. And now Gideon had 70 sons, uh, 70 sons, his own offsprings, for he had many wives, right? Like, duh, right? When you have 70 sons, it's not one woman that you have 70 sons with, right? And chances are Gideon had daughters too. They just didn't mention them. Like he wasn't that guy who was like, man, we got to have that girl. And it's like, dang it, 39, maybe 40 is the girl. Maybe 40, right? We're going to try for that girl. No, Gideon had many wives. He took on wives. He took on Drury. He took on the fame. And not only just had a wife, verse 32, it says, Gideon, the son of Joash, died, or excuse me, just before that, verse 31, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called him, his name Abimelech. And you say, oh, first of all, a concubine. A concubine is basically his side chick, right? There's another way to say that. He's got this side chick in Shechem. Like that's where he goes and does stuff there and, um, and has a kid and his name is Abimelech. Why does that matter? Um, Abimelech is who we're going to learn about here in just a chapter. Abimelech means, remember he said, I'm not your king. God's your king. And he names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. I don't know what he meant by that. Maybe he didn't speak Hebrew. I have no idea, right? Um, <laughs> my, son is, my, my father is king is what he names him. Well, what we have in 33 is as soon as Gideon died, guess what happened? The people of Israel turned again and whored after Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, let me just kind of put a cap on Gideon real quick here, because a lot of times as evangelicals, we want to say, well, the first part of his life was good and the second part wasn't good. Is he in heaven or not? Is he with Jesus or not? Listen, I, I, that's not for us. But what we do know is when we read in the hall of faith in Hebrews, it says that Gideon was a man of faith. The faith that he showed is he actually did trust God. That doesn't mean that his character was consistent with what he believed. Um, there are many of us that can line up with there going, I know that I trust God, but not always is my character beginning to line up there. Gideon's problem oftentimes is the same problem we have. We want praise and we show that we say one thing, but our hearts mean another. Here's what I mean. Here's the problem I have. Um, let me just talk about my marriage a little bit because that's where most of my, my, my issues show forth. When you live with someone for a long time, the, the, the best part about that is you grow to know them and they grow to know you. The worst part about it is they grow to know you. <laughs> Like you can't hide, right? I used to be funny to Holly. Now she's like, it ain't working, bro. And I'm like, dang it, right? So, so I try to do things for my wife and I literally believe my wife is just better than me, right? And I was not trying to be humble or whatever. Like, I'll tell you the truth. There's some things I'm better than Holly at, but for, like overall in life, she's better than me, right? 
She doesn't make nearly the amount of mistakes that I make. And so I feel like I'm always trying to catch up. And not like there's a tally in our house, but the, I'm, 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 I'm trying to catch, I'm just trying to catch up. So what happens is, and, and I don't know if you've ever been there before, where you wanna do something for someone, you say, I'm just doing this out of the goodness of my heart, but then they don't respect you or they don't say thank you. And then you get upset. Does it happen to you guys? Right? So, so I know there's ways that, that shows her that I love her. Like if I got home and, and I washed the dishes and I cleaned up the house, another day I washed the dishes, I mopped the floors, I mean, got the essential oils in the air, it's like, bam, right? And, 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 then, and then I start cooking. So I'm cooking and, and I, I, think, I think things is, I, you know what? I think it's going pretty good. I got some music in the background here, you know? So there's, there's, she comes home and she goes, do you have the AC on? Is the AC running? And I'm like, really, you gonna call about the AC? You don't smell the food in the air. You don't smell the aroma. I'm like, Mr. Clean in this, and you know, and I get upset because I'm like, man, how could you not even notice that I, I did all this and I did it for you out of the goodness of my heart? Really, <laughs> right? We get offended when people don't give us the appreciation because then it shows it was not the goodness of my heart. At some level, I did this for you to say good job. And that's where we are. Or think of it this way. You've done something in your vocation or work and your boss comes to your partner and go, wow, you did a really good job on this. That was a really good idea. And you're going, wait, wait. And there's a part of you going, hey, I want to be like, oh, that was a good job that I told her to do, right? Right, you want to get some sort of credit on it. And you have this, this war between you. Like you want people to see you. You tell a story and you're at the center of it. Like somehow you're the hero, even in, when there's false humility. I was talking to a guy the other day and he goes, man, I just know that uh, life is not about me. I serve people and I'm literally talking to this guy and I can tell what he's about to say. Like, you know, I don't want to tell everybody that I'm serving, you know, all these homeless people and I'm getting this guy out of poverty poverty, and, and basically I'm like a father to him and like he's never really had a dad. I mean, I don't have to tell people that. Like I know I do it out of the good heart. Nobody even knows. My right hand doesn't even know that my left hand's also doing the same thing. And he just kept going on and on. I'm like, man, hey, you are, you are, wow, obscure, man, you shoot, man, I don't know anybody would ever know that you did that, right? And it's, it's just this, and it's in us all. It's, it's in us all. It, it, it begins to taint us. And what happens is when we begin to take our view off of God, that's exactly what happens. And that's what happened to Gideon. The story that happens next goes even darker into pride. Because at least Gideon, as all the other judges, were basically set up by God and called by God. This next king, or this next quasi-king is not set up by God. And I'm going to paraphrase chapter 9. It's like 57 verses. You can go back and read it yourself. Well, what happens next is, remember Abimelech? Abimelech was not raised with the other 70 sons. Abimelech was in Shechem, and he goes to his people in Shechem, and he says, hey, you know what? Why would you guys want 70 people to run over you when you can just have one? And the people of Shechem go, you know what? That's right. Why don't you rule over us? And they gave him some money, and it says he hired a worthless group of people, meaning he had a little, a little, little, little hood crew around him. And the first thing that they did was they went and killed all 70 brothers, took them out. And the rest of the time, they began, he began to rule this way. Well, they forgot to kill one more, one kid, and his name was Jotham. He was the youngest of Gideon. And he stood up on the top of a mountain, and everyone saw him. He goes, hey, everybody listen. And he told a fable. He goes, once there was this tree. And this tree went to the olive tree and said, hey, olive tree, why don't you get anointed and rule over me? And the olive tree said, nah, I don't want to do that. I got these things. No, I'm not good for it. And he goes, okay, it goes to the fig tree. Hey, fig tree, why don't you rule over it? Nah, I don't, I don't want to rule over you guys. You're fine. Then he goes to the vine. And he says, vine, why don't you rule over you? He goes, no, I produce wine and wine makes the heart happy. I don't want to rule over you. And then he goes to the brambles. And the bramble goes, are you sure you want me to do it? Well, if in good conscience you want me to do it, sure, I'll rule over you. And he tells this fable. 
And this meant something because in their agricultural land, you know, the olive tree had provision. The fig tree had provision. The vine had provision. The brambles didn't mean anything. Only thing they did was they caught on fire and they burned things up. And he says, likewise, now that you've set up Abimelech, if it was in your good heart that you set him up, great, good. But he knew that wasn't. Because if not, may he be burned and may you guys be burned. And so he's bold and he's standing in front of everybody and he does what any bold person would do in that moment. As soon as he was done, he said he took off and he ran, right? He's like, I'm getting out of here, right? I said what I had to say. That was just prophetic on his part because that fable came to pass. Because you begin to ask the question as you continue to read chapter nine and how dark it is, where is God in any of this? Well, we begin to see God shows up in chapter nine, but he shows up to judge and he bring about judgment. Verse 23, chapter 9. And God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jerobel might come and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Well, the people turn against him and they turn towards another guy named Gael. He hears about it and he's upset. And he goes and he starts burning down the city, just like the bramble burns. And he's killing people left and right. And he thinks he's going to take the whole city out. And then one of the more unique parts in the story, verse 50 now, see how we jumped ahead? Verse 50, and Abimelech went to Thebes and he camped against Thebes and captured it. But there was a strong tower within the city and all the men and women and all the leaders of the city fled to it and shut themselves in. And they went up to the roof tower and Abimelech came to the tower and fought against it and drew near to the door of the tower to burn it with fire. And a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. (laughs) You know, you could see that everybody's hiding. They're like, all the men are like, no, get in, get the women, you know, hide your wives, hide your kids, all that's going on right now. And they're saying, get in, get in. And it took a woman, right? You know why? Women are resilient like this. Like, no, you know what? No, you know, I'm sick of this, right? We're done, right? Like this certain woman starts snapping her fingers. She's like, we were on a tower. I got a stone. Woo! Bam! Right in his head. And she was like, right? And just walked away. Now, now, Abimelech doesn't die yet, though. He knows he's on his way out. But remember, it's humiliation if you get killed by a, a child or a woman. So he goes to his, his like, servant and goes, hey, get a sword and kill me so I don't say that a woman killed me. I don't know how this went down back then, but apparently that was just okay. And the servant was like, all right, all right, here you go. And just took him out, right? So he's done, and that's how that situation ends. But it shows something about the character of God. He's not going to let sin go unpunished. And I know we like to think about God only as this loving God, but we don't like to see that he's also a God of wrath and a God of justice, and he judges. And his, judges, his judgment is not something that's reserved to the last days. But Romans 1 says it is the wrath of God that is being revealed, that it happens. Now, I'm not trying to say that whenever we look at something that's bad happening in the world, we go, oh, that's God's judgment. That's God's judgment. I don't think that's wise. But in this case, God is saying, that's exactly what I was doing. I'm repaying him for what he had done. And God brings about judgment. And even in this judgment, God is showing that there's hope. I'm not going to let an unjust king continue to rule. And the way this section concludes in the the first five verses of chapter 10 is God begins to bring up other judges. And these judges were like Shagmar. They don't have a whole lot of stories. The first judge that we see, his name is Tola. Um, and and his, he's a son of Dodo, and he leads for a while, for 23 years. And the next one in chapter 3, his name is Jair, and he's a Gileite, who judged Israel, it says in verse 3 here of chapter 10, for 22 years, and he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. 
So apparently that was important. Um, he had these 30 donkeys and he had 30 cities and so forth. And he died and he was buried. What God showed is that he, became, he continued to raise up people to lead his people. So when we step back and we go, okay, that's a lot. How do we begin to see the theological implications of this text? Meaning, what do we begin to see how God relates to his people? We see that God is still gracious. He's still merciful. He's a God who judges. And we see this fulfillment of, of what happens in the, like the, the, the kings, or excuse me, the judges are just a shadow of the ultimate judge. Because God continues to relate to his people throughout the scriptures this way, and we see it most fully in the work of Jesus. But unlike Gideon, who takes the ephod and pretends to be the spiritual leader, Jesus actually says, I am the way and I'm the truth and I'm the life. That we enter and know the Father through him. But unlike Gideon, who takes all the power for himself and kind of hoards it, Jesus says, all power and authority has been given to me. And then what does he say? I give it to you, go make disciples. That, that unlike Gideon, who says, this is the place of worship, forget about the tabernacle, Jesus says, now I am the tabernacle. And the way that you know God is absolutely through me. To see God is to know Jesus, and know Jesus is to see God. And we begin to see that ultimately he was not one who said, I needed 300 to go in the battle, and ultimately people would receive the victory if we could just win. That he just says, I need one. And it's God himself who comes, and he goes against the ultimate battle that we have to go through. That sin, Satan, death, and he conquered it. Now every single person who's a part of his tribe, meaning everyone, every single person, every nation, every tribe who believes in him, now receives the victory by sheer grace. There's nothing that we can do. He doesn't say, I'm going to will it down to 300. He says, I'm going to will it down to one. And that's ultimately Jesus Christ and understanding him. And that God relates to us through Christ, through his mercy. He relates to us through Jesus and he extends grace that all of us now have been called by him to be able to repent of our ways and trust in Jesus. So what implications when we see the life of Christ as our ultimate judge and as our highest degree of authority, what implications do we have as we walk away here? Um, It's really simple here. Let's be glory reflectors and not glory absorbers. People who reflect the glory of God and don't absorb it. here's, Here's how we do that. Some simple ways. One, this first one here, serve more. Take your eyes off yourself. There's no the battle for God and for Gideon. It's just God and let him get it. I'm not trying to say you need to walk up to people and say cheesy Christian things. How's your life? Better than it should, better than I deserve. Just be normal, right? But serve people. Give yourself to people. Keep your eyes off yourself. Number two, cultivate gratitude. We are a complaining group of people. Just go look at your Facebook posts. I haven't been looking at them. Um, and just, just look at how we complain. We will complain all summer about how hot it is here. It gets cold for like a day. Oh, it's cold. Just wait. Just wait, right? Cultivate a sense of gratitude of who God is and all the many blessings that he's given you. Number three here is don't be defensive. You can tell what your idol, your idol is because you're going to defend it. You, you, you're getting upset for no reason. Sometimes people are going to get you wrong. Right? Some people are going to look at you and think different things of you. So you don't need to fight for it. God is so gracious, you don't need to prove yourself. And the last of these other three are meaningless if we don't do the last one. That is worship Jesus. We don't worship the people God brings in our life. God has given you good parents, some of you. That's awesome. Be thankful for that. They are not your Savior. God has given you guys a good church. I think this church is great. It is not your Savior. God has given you faithful leaders. They are, we are not your Saviors. He's given you gifts and talents. We, none of those things are your saviors. Like these, all of these things are the gift that God gives us. Hear, hear, hear me on this. And I've been telling this, this, our church this all day. Um, when it comes to our church, um, here's what you can do to help us as your pastors. Let us just be pastors. Help us to be sinners who are saved by God's grace to shepherd you guys through the word of God. 
meaning we're not above you guys, we're not below you guys. What happened with Gideon was Gideon's fault, but what played into it is that people said, Gideon, we want you to do this, we want you to do that. And sometimes people treat their pastors that way. They're called to lead you, but they are sinners just like you. That's not to get us off the hook at all. It's just going, don't pick a church because of the charisma or something over a particular pastor or a worship leader. That, that's meaningless, right? Like we join each other as we center around our worship of Jesus. And we worship him and see him for what he's done. We begin to mimic him in community and we're a part of his church. Like one of the things I can't stand, right? And I don't know how to change this is when people go, oh, you're a pastor of redemption. I heard that's a cool church. We're not a cool church, right? Like I wish people would say, you're faithful. Don't you guys pour yourselves out for the community? Like, we want to see the response to the gospel. We're not cool. Here's the deal. We're young, right? Give it about 15 years. And people are like, oh, you're not cool anymore. We're just not 30 anymore, right? Like that's, that's ultimately it. And some of you are younger than that. So you got longer than us. There's nothing we're doing that make ourselves cool. There's nothing we should boast on. That's like the person who comes out born and they're just good looking. They're like, oh, I worked really hard. You didn't do anything, right? That is pure genetics, right? Your mom, your dad, they gave that to you. Quit walking around it. Listen, guys, when we worship Jesus and it becomes central around him, we find ourselves doing the right things in response to the right one. And not just not individually, that's a church. Our church has to be centered around Jesus so that we don't find ourselves on one end being crumpled by our failure because of our sin that we begin to understand and, and walk in and rest in God's grace. He's not going to forget us and he's not going to leave us. But on the other end, God has given us as a community of, of faith, success. Meaning he's saving people. People are being baptized. Marriages are happening. People are having babies. Single people see their identity in Christ and not anything else. Those are beautiful things. We need God's grace to realize we didn't do anything for that. All we're doing is working off of what God has been able to give us. When we center our lives on Jesus, we reflect the glory that God has put in our way back to him in worship. We reflect his glory to each other, and that's community. And we reflect his glory to the creation around us, and that becomes mission. And it's ultimately centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, close your Bibles. Let's, uh, let's respond to God's word. Um, let me pray and ask God to prepare our hearts as we respond. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you do give us these scriptures that oftentimes are very difficult to understand. But ultimately, Lord, we know that every single thing in the scriptures, as your word says, it points to Jesus. That, Father, we may not understand why you do the things you do fully, but we do know this, that on the cross, Jesus absorbed for us our judgment. Lord, let us never be the people that absorb his glory. Father, it is natural for us in our own hearts that we are naturally glory seekers, Lord. Help us through grace. Help us by your spirit. Help us to see your character in complete adoration of you, that our eyes will be fixed upon you, the author and perfecter of our faith, that we would reflect your glory to the people and the places and cultures around us. Father, we ask that we be humbled by who you are and that your spirit would anoint and fill us to do the task in which you've called us to do. Lord, we thank you. And it's in your great name we pray. Amen.